Welcome to a special edition of the Electro Library, Electro Library Live, where we collect recordings of live events that complement our auditory cabinet of curiosities. Today we're happy to broadcast the entirety of Fred Moten's recent poetry reading and lecture at Stonehill College, recorded on October 16th, 2019. We were delighted to have Professor Moten as this year's Chet Ramo Literary Series Lecturer, hosted by Stonehill College's May School of the Arts and Sciences and the English and Creative Writing Programs. For more information about the Ramo Literary Series or the Electro Library, follow the links in the description. Thanks for listening. pleasure and an honor to introduce Fred Moten to you tonight. Visionary, poet, theorist, activist, budding double bass player, art critic, Guggenheim fellow, professor of performance studies at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, award-winning author of multiple volumes of poetry and cultural criticism including his breathtaking poetry collection, The Field Trio, which was a finalist for the 2014 National Book Award. And most recently, the astonishing trilogy of essay collections collectively entitled Consent Not to Be a Single Being. There's a brief period over the last year or so in which Professor Moten seemed to be everywhere I turned not just in reviews of his recently completed essay trilogy, but full profiles in The New Yorker, the Harvard Alumni Magazine, Art News, and elsewhere. It's been thrilling to see this public conversation about his work because to read Fred Moten's work is to be invited into a dense and demanding conversation, the best kind of challenge. It's a conversation that opens up and explores our interweaving and impossible histories of blackness, of the university, of commonly segregated disciplinary pursuits, literature, philosophy, music, the visual arts. It's a conversation with fellow critics, with artists, with philosophers that's marked by a generosity of spirit, by inspired juxtapositions, by a refusal of containment. It's really an act of rebellion against containment in its insistence on entanglements and disruptions. And above all, by a commitment to listening at all registers. And like all great poetry and criticism, Fred Moten's work profoundly rewards the labor that we give it. It's a group project. As he describes near the end of his gorgeous searching essay in honor of critic Jose Munoz, who died too young in 2013, the collective work of critic, artist, reader becomes a mutual obligation for all of us. Jose's death left a gaping hole and inside this irreplaceable loss in Fred's essay, here still is Jose, who we've now got to bear and who in turn bears us. Quote, lost and found, now improperly dispersed in us. It's our job, he continues, our animated and animative labor to bear that, to be born by that, to keep being reborn in that. So we have to keep on playing. I love this vision of rebirth in the face of unspeakable, inevitable loss, the obligatory, exhausting, rewarding, frustrating project of playful engagement with the world. We have to keep on playing. Fred Moten helps us to mourn and celebrate, helps us find new possibilities and new modes of expression emerging insistently and exuberantly 
at bottom, above all, in the heart, on the outskirts. This is a gift and a challenge for us all. Please join me in welcoming Fred Moten. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Amra, Jerry, Jill, everybody I've met here has been so nice and welcoming and friendly, and I am, uh, it's a great pleasure and an honor for me to be here. Um, it, <laughs> listening to that introduction, I'm just a little bit nervous about, um, I, I was talking to George, the chair of the English department, and reliving my Catholic school days at Central Catholic High School in Pittsburgh, and, and I'm thinking, have I fallen too far? Have I lapsed too much to be here? And then when I was listening to you, Dan, read what I wrote, I was like, no, the, the Catholicism is deep in me, the same way it was in a certain way in Jose, too. And I'm happy for that to be there. Um, uh, so here's what I, what I want to do. Um, one of my favorite poets and someone whose work was always has been with me forever and that I learned so much from is William Carlos Williams. And one of my favorite books by Williams is called I Wanted to Write a Poem. And what this book does essentially is take a few poems sort of scattered across the, the breadth of his career, and he kind of tells you where those poems came from. He doesn't necessarily give interpretations of them, but he kind of produces or gives context for them. And, um, and, and I thought I would do that a little bit to, tonight. Um, but for me, that, that requires showing a couple of pictures and playing some music. So, so the itinerary is this. I'm going to read two pieces from this new book called All That Beauty, the, the first two pieces in the book. Um, and then I'm going to read three poems, maybe interspersed with some talk, um, about someone who, uh, a great singer, a great musician named Nancy Wilson. Has anybody ever heard of Nancy Wilson or listening? To okay. I'm going to... She was a big presence in my life as a kid, not because I knew her or anything, but because she was constantly on my mother's record player. And um, it began to feel to me many times like, like Nancy Wilson and Bobby Bland and Count Basie were living in our house, cause they, and they were always playing. They would never shut up. Um, and, so, and then eventually I got to the point where I didn't want them to, um, luckily. So... So I want to try to trace a kind of itinerary for, of Nancy Wilson's work through a couple of books of mine, and then maybe we'll end with, and then by the end, I'll know what to do at the end. Okay. So um, I'm going to read the, it's not that it's the title poem of All That Beauty, but it's the, I don't even know if it's a poem, but it's a, it's a kind of, it's a piece of writing that tries to set the terms for the, what goes on in the rest of the book. And in some ways it's, um, it's, it kind of sets the terms for the fact that this book doesn't quite know if it's poetry or prose. Um, and maybe that's okay. Now, here's the problem with this. It's got three epigraphs from James Baldwin. And you have to be really stupid to begin your book with three epigraphs from James Baldwin, because it's all downhill, right? Like, what follows can't be, can't, can't rise up, but, but I'm that stupid, so here we go. Um, the first is from Notes of a Native Son, his first collection of essays. He writes, about my interests, I don't know if I have any, unless the morbid desire to own a 16-millimeter camera and make experimental movies can be so classified. The next is from The Fire Next Time. He writes, When I was very young 
and was dealing with my buddies in those wine and urine stained hallways, something in me wondered, what will happen to all that beauty? For black people, though I am aware that some of us, black and white, do not know it yet, are very beautiful. And when I sat at Elijah's table and watched the baby, the women, and the men, and we talked about God's or Allah's vengeance, I wondered when that vengeance was achieved, what will happen to all that beauty then? And this third epigraph is from this wonderful book he wrote about film called The Devil Finds Work. And this one's a little longer, so forgive me. My father said during all the years I lived with him that I was the ugliest boy he had ever seen and I had absolutely no reason to doubt him. But it was not my father's hatred of my frog eyes which hurt me, this hatred proving in time to be rather more resounding than real. I have my mother's eyes. When my father called me ugly, he was not attacking me so much as he was attacking my mother. No doubt he was also attacking my real and unknown father. And I loved my mother. I knew that she loved me, and I sensed that she was paying an enormous price for me. I was a boy, and so I didn't really too much care that my father thought me hideous. So I said to myself, this judgment, nevertheless, was to have a decidedly terrifying effect on my life. But I thought that he must have been stricken blind or was as mysteriously wicked as white people, a paralyzing thought, if he was unable to see that my mother was absolutely, beyond any question, the most beautiful woman in the world. So here now was Betty Davis on that Saturday afternoon in close-up over a champagne glass, pop eyes popping. I had caught my father not in a lie, but in an infirmity, for here before me, after all, was a movie star, white. And if she was white and a movie star, she was rich and she was ugly. I felt exactly the same way I felt just before this moment or just after when I was in the street playing and I saw an old, very black and very drunk woman stumbling up the sidewalk and I ran upstairs to make my mother come to the window and see what I had found. You see, you see, she's uglier than you, mama. She's uglier than me. Out of bewilderment, out of loyalty to my mother probably, and also because I sensed something menacing and unhealthy for me, certainly, in the face on the screen, I gave Davis's skin the dead, white, greenish cast of something crawling from under a rock. But I was held just the same by the tense intelligence of the forehead, the disaster of the lips, and when she moved, she moved just like a nigger. Eventually, from a hospital bed, she murders someone, and Spencer Tracy takes the weight to Sing Sing. In his arms, Davis cries and cries, and the movie ends. What's going to happen to her now? I asked Bill Miller. We don't know, said Bill, conveying to me, nevertheless, that she would probably never get over it, that people pay for what they do. So this is me, sorry. The truth to which criticism has access fades to blur, and we're sorry for our reckless scrutiny. But the study that soils transparency and the rightful belief that it reveals an opacity that's always there need offer no apology to James Baldwin, since it's he who teaches us to look so closely that we see all dark through what we see. Criticism is supposed to let you see through that. Criticism is poetry in this regard, and in this regard, Baldwin is more plus less than either critic or poet or both. He makes us let us look for ourselves and through ourselves till we're beside ourselves. To be beside ourselves with holy looking is to practice Baldwin's selflessness, which is only his to give away in demanding that we see through him, too, in pursuit of impure, eccentric fugue, rather than the chaste satisfaction that's said to live in one-on-one -on -one relation. Fugitive in small groups, dispossession flays the pair's impossible monogamy and folds to nothing where there are no things. Such movement intimates black indecision, 
which is given in the setting of the scene, which incompletes, unsettles, and upsets the scene. It's inappropriate and inappropriable. Ain't no grasping presence to be grasped, no endless fight for standing to withstand, just this anappropriaceptive falling into tangled discords felt review. Such movement intimates black metaphysics, almost. All in transport, all the way up in here, way out from, out from, out from there, where Harlem is nowhere, in passage, the indexical play of observer and observed, theorist and theorized, dreamer and dreamed, ebbs in topographical caress, glistening, unheld in gazing, intricate toward gala, neither here nor there we go, down at the cross. The more we read all that beauty, the more unreadable we are. Transparency tries to hide a grammatical black hole, a spiraling refusal of singularity that flares us into visionary company. It all has to do with it, this apposition in the scene, his deposition of scenography. He brings us with what he is and sees, which is us, or we're brought with them in what he's not and sees through. That embrace, the ecstatic terrain of all that beauty, is Baldwin's function. He's like a telephonic switch in a telephoto lens, seeing double, doubly seen through, sounding life but seen with, too, as if three and more plus less, mass found in variable densities of blessing, gliding, Jimmy and them at study, todo mundo de portela, foretelling, divining that confabulous, alchemeric way we move in camera. His is the eye through which the scene he's in is seen. He stays there like a loving machine, but on the way, his eyes not now his own in being seen through by the others who can't see, but somehow see the fate of all that beauty. All this turbulence comes with that, which is so emphatically not this, subventing by subverting some kind of living in our terribleness with hard, delicate, extra retrospection. Derivative of this and its egocentric particularity, that drifts in crowded, nervous torpor. Those hallways go everywhere but gone. But something else is held in something being held off in the making, bending, crumpling of a dislocation where buddies are and have no bodies. The nearly metaphorical errancy of that is there to let us know he doesn't merely look at us. He looks on us, and in that burden, we are covered and uninframed. We live where you and I can't live, which is the truth of all that beauty, which we protect and convey as lovers. Where do you get eyes to see all that like that? Against the grain of the father's desperate and uncertain cruelty, which he never ceased writing about and trying to understand and forgive and indetermine. Baldwin is mama's baby all along. Look how he sees through himself in Betty Davis's eyes. What's going to happen to her now? What will happen to all that ugly beauty then? What happens when we murmur, throng, and shudder? There's a word sheaf arrayed in morbid experimental want, a wet, atonal burst of seasoned speech as if in every gaze lay the molten structure of another language. All that enchevetrement so sharp, so fly, so undivisible, you have to put your sunglasses on so you can feel it, like Elizabeth Eckford. The Little Rock Nine and the Harlem Six and the Little Rock Nine of Harlem swing those wine and urine-stained hallways. And in preoccupied company, Coop twirls revisionary nightsticks. That's our braille and brushed prosaics. Our shedding sheds the portrait in the sharding of the mirror. Then here come the earth in threads. It's nature having risen. It's finger optic love come down. Hand and eye uncoordinate but social and unbearably inseparable. Relation slides in monkish transposition. Cenobitic sight off sight. Exogamous insight flown off the handle, unowned, unsightable, dispersively excited, exotic jam, all exit all the time in Cena Ballet's shaded glance, grave, ungraven, unworldly, because we're too from the good black dirt, index all and arranged, all frayed and arabesque, 
pointing, fringing back at its own heart, which brings on the juice of our broken flesh, our little broken flasha, our blurred and burled, unoriented surface. The wine, the blood, the shot, the scene, all dance. Oh, man, it's all a kind of miracle. Down here with us because he looks like us, because he looks like her. They tell us how to look like them so we can reach through us to what we share. So, okay. What's going on with that? Um, (laughs) It's like... When I was a kid, growing up in my neighborhood, in the sort of black community of Las Vegas, Nevada, which was a kind of transplanted southern community, one good way to get in a fight was to look at somebody too long. And, uh, and it was like, uh, <laughs> like, and the way that it would usually kick off would be somebody saying, who you looking at? What you looking at? Um, And it was as if even though we were kids, we knew something about the violence that attends and that corresponds to what it is to be black and to be looked at, right? Um, And I'm always keeping this in mind because I'm always fascinated nowadays in sort of contemporary black critical discourse or in maybe the, the sort of Twitter outskirts of that discourse where people say stuff like, you know, I see you. You know what I'm saying? Like that kind of thing where, you know, um, I understand. I, I'm like, how do I correspond what appears to be this expression of love or at least of some sense of having been loved? I see you. With that old critical understanding that we had as kids of who you looking at, right? So part of what I'm really invested in and interested in, I guess, in this book is the terror of being looked at, the beauty of being looked at. And I'm kind of thinking that maybe the object of all our struggle is not to be seen, but to be seen through, right? To become a lens or a window through which some new kind of thing can be seen, um, rather than to be fully ensconced as an object of someone else's knowledge or gaze. So. So I'm trying to think about beauty in relation to that. Um, anyway, that's, that's part of it. So that's kind of the guiding principle or tries to establish some principles for what's going on in this book. And then the next piece I'll read from the book is attempt, you know, to sort of think through or try to take into account those principles or, or put them to use in some kind of way. And that's where this picture comes in. This, is, this picture is a photograph that's sometimes known as Sun and Shade by a great black photographer who spent many of his years in Harlem named Roy D. Carava. And I won't say too much about it, but what I'm going to try to do is show you the strange itinerary, but maybe not so strange, through which this photograph comes to me. So that means I gotta I gotta look something up on the internet. So. Let's see how successful I am. I think I'm going to find it. But this is a painting by Bruegel, Peter Bruegel, great Dutch painter. And I think I love Bruegel maybe more than any other other old masters because of how obsessed he was with just showing social life. Right? Um, y'all ever, anybody y'all ever watch this show, Good Times? Okay. Here, now I got to, okay, I got to find something else. Remember when they're playing the theme of good times and they're showing the apartment that the Evans family lived in, right? You know, because J.J. was a painter. So this is supposedly one of J.J.'s paintings, but it's really a painting by a former football player named Ernie Barnes, right? And it's called the Sugar Shack. Now, it has another life besides J.J., it's also the cover of Marvin Gaye's great album, I Want You, okay. which, since we're here, you can't bring up Marvin Gaye, it would be wrong, without, you know, right? You've got to have a little bit, and I want to, okay, 
Come on, help me, help me. Okay. We might be here for a while. Okay, here we go. This is, oh man, my favorite song. Get up, get up. This is a kind of early, a kind of concept album. It's 1976. And the concept behind it is it's the story of this sort of late trajectory of a relationship, a couple that had broken up, but then they meet again at the neighborhood dance. And the neighborhood dance is represented by the same Ernie Barnes photograph. And what I'm trying to say is that, for me at least, that tradition that we see Barnes and, in a different way, Marvin Gaye connecting to, for me, it goes back to Bruegel. Doesn't necessarily end at Bruegel, because that's what Bruegel is doing here. He's, it's the same image, right? It's just showing a neighborhood dance, some village, you know, in Belgium, maybe. And what's, what's interesting is how Williams responds to it. It's this beautiful little poem late in his career, his last real published book of poems called Pictures from Bruegel, The Dance. In Bruegel's great picture, the kermess, the dancers go round, they go round and around, the squeal and the blare and the tweedle of bagpipes, a bugle and fiddles tipping their bellies round as the thick-sided glasses whose wash they impound their hips and their bellies off balance to turn them, kicking and rolling about the fairgrounds, swinging their butts. Those shanks must be sound to bear up under such rollicking measures. Prance as they dance in Bruegel's great picture, the Kermess. So what I'm trying to do in my own way is to think about this in relation to this beautiful photograph by Roy B. Carava, and I'll write what I wrote, I'll read what I wrote so you can see it, um, see the connection. It's just a, it's just a detail. It's a small detail in the poem, but it's, it's the thing from which this piece of writing radiates. Okay, so it's called Sun and Shade. Blackness is the ceaselessly miraculous demonstration that there is no black and white, just sun and shade. This insight is serial, over and over, all over the place, as an irreducible element of art consciousness's remedial education, registering the condition that is without remedy. Photographs of people continually getting over the fact that they can't get over reveal their terribly beautiful, beautiful inability to get over the fact that they do, which is given in looking back in mournful wonder, ahead in worn anticipation. Insofar as the photograph looks back and forth like that in general, its existential condition is given when blackness in play, as the play of sun and shade, is playfully, painstakingly regarded. 
The capaciousness of blacks' color field is actualized out from the outside, all in all, all this insight forming outside, inside out. Efforts to achieve blacks' purity misunderstand its depth of study. In documenting plays' concrete abstraction, where abstraction folds in flown documentation, given understandings of abstraction therein unfolded, unraveled, hand-delivered, put in play, black is an all-but-gray-blue university. The contemplative eclipse of portraiture and its substructural metaphysics that sociality convenes it's like a detail in Bruegel that Bruegel left out or something left out in Bruegel and recovered from and in its immersion in a terrible, projective, illuminating solution of silver and gelatin. Particulate dispersion is applied in the interest of monstrous, ecstatic showing. Faces are held between torn up and hiding, grotesquerie and umbrage. That's our non-particulate dispersal. The development of excluded essence is a tragedy you render miraculous. What it is to look at black as black, all up in all of it so emphatically that in its absence, color is everywhere. It's where you carefully, playfully, unsettlingly reside. What it is to reside, what is it to reside without settling? Is that is or is that ain't like being stuck in sweetness, held in life? Black life is like Ife in hell or on the L, which is the sound of joy, son says. Son who? Son house, I think, unhoused someday in Harlem's bright Mississippi. Two little boys drawing out that string in strange, strung out fray. See, their play is fraught, insistent movement, nervous muscularity, mobility that stays, that's all but still, but for the shift in overtone. Captured motion's constant flight turns out to always sound like something. It's eerie enough for the difference between loud and quiet not to signify. Silence and blackness are more plus less than one in this regard, which is often disregarded as the train falls through the trees, the skyscrapers, and everything, and nothing. The sound you see is movement, a resonance of back and forth and falling from partition to partiality a preference for our social incompleteness, individuation played out, relation exhausted in obscure, tensile revelation. Everything's gone. Every photograph is a photograph of that, which is an actual photograph, which an actual photograph of that makes definitely clear. It's not that it's not a sin and a shame that sun and shade is so beautiful. It's just that black in being so beautiful is forgiveness. All right, so that's enough of that, all that beauty. And now um, I, I want to, I know exactly what I'm going to do. So I want to, there's these three poems I want to read and talk about a little bit. Um, one of them is in a book called B. Jenkins, which is named after my mom. And, uh, well, two of them are in B. Jenkins, actually. And then one of them is, is in this book called The Little Edges. Um, this is the Nancy Wilson part. So, so the first thing I got to do is I got to play these two songs by Nancy Wilson. Okay. They're actually one song sung two different ways. This is a recording, her first recording made by her, um, after she had been sort of discovered by a great saxophone player, member of Miles Davis's sort of first great sestet named Cannonball Adderley. So it's a recording that they did together, and the song is called Save Your Love For Me. Wish I knew Why I'm so in love with you No one else in this world Darling, please save your love for me. Run away. If I were wise, I'd run away. 
That version is the version that I had in mind when I was working on this poem, which is in B. Jenkins. B. Jenkins is a kind of elegy from my mom, and most of the poems, all of the poems in B. Jenkins are, the titles are someone else's proper name, because I had it in my head that, that what my mom is is a kind of composite figure, right? Like if, if you had a big picture of my mom and you blew it up close enough, it would be that pixelated thing there would be a whole bunch of pictures of other folks, right? Some of whom she knew, some of whom she didn't. One of whom is Gail Jones, who's one of our great, great living novelists and critics. Um, and even though this is a poem in a book about my mom, it's really about my, my father in some ways. My daddy drank red soda pop. Once he wanted a Fleetwood, then he wanted a navigator so he could navigate, check out his radio towers, deliver flowers, drive back to give me long kisses, watch mama burn her books. Said Nancy Wilson can't sing, but she can style. Hold back the force of random operators, return to the line, refuse to punctuate, a moon. But his actual drive was watching clay circle, tight breath hunch, tight shoulder, Sweet Nancy Wilson was just cold analytics, the difference between a new coat and the one with ink on the pocket. Calculate like a fat young minister, stroking like Clarence Carter, increase like Creflo Dollar. Mama and me stayed up over the club, cried sometimes in the same, broke off the same piece, left each other the last piece, practiced the same piece, got warm on the same. However, I'm so full this morning, I have to try and make you understand. Um, man, I, I don't know why. I <laughs> That's very personal. I guess I have to tell you all about it now. Um, so you all know there's this great, great, great novel by Gail Jones called Corregidora. And it's about a woman who is a descendant of... In, of, of uh, enslaved Africans who were in Brazil, who ends up in Louisville, Kentucky, as a blues singer living above a club. And she, Corregidor, among other things, is obsessed with her capacity to, as she put it, make generations. But the person who she fell in love with hurt her and rendered her sterile. And so a huge part of this book is about how a kind of constantly interdicted black motherhood sort of somehow comes to still maintain and exist. And, and, and I was thinking about that part of it when my parents split up. You know, my, my father left us in a kind of destitute state 
And I remember one time when we were living in Pittsburgh, it was that kind of thing where neither one of us would eat the last piece of chicken. Y'all know? (laughs) Do y'all know what I'm talking about? It would would always be some shriveled up piece of chicken because neither one of us would eat the last piece. Um, my, My father went to the ninth grade. He couldn't really read. He was a kind of a brilliant guy, and he said he used to say these things, which I'm still obsessed with. I don't even know if they were true. I just know that they were smart. He's kind of like Adorno in a way. And that's what he said about about Nancy Wilson. She, I just remember saying it kind of out of the blue. I must have been six or seven years old in the basement of our house when my mom was playing, and she's playing Nancy Wilson because that was the soundtrack that she needed to get through life with him until she could kick him to the, you know what I'm saying? So, so, so I think always when he was critiquing Nancy Wilson, it was also a critique of my, anyway, I don't even know, why am I telling, anyway. But, but that's one thing he said, Nancy Wilson can't sing, but she can style. And I never forgot it. Um, and I always think of it when I listen to this, um, this next version of the same song, and I wonder... I wonder sometimes what he would have said about this. Hey, we're going to get a different groove. Wish I knew. Why I'm so in love with you. No one else in this world will do. Darling, please say your love for me. Like a fool in love, I stay and pray you'll save your love for me. So, there was this great philosopher at Cambridge University named Frank Ramsey. He was there in the 30s and 40s, and one of his main claims to fame besides being a great philosopher, was he was the only person at Cambridge who wasn't scared of Wittgenstein, would actually argue with him. And he thought a whole lot of what Wittgenstein was saying was nonsense. Um, Wittgenstein was convinced that there was um, certain things that just couldn't be said. Um, Ramsey resisted this in a certain kind of way. Um, Because what he resisted was the fact that in the face of the ineffable, Wittgenstein kept talking all the time anyway. He thought it was disingenuous. Um, So one of his famous retorts to Wittgenstein was like, what can't be said can't be said, and it can't be whistled either. And somehow in my head, he's got something to do with Nancy Wilson. What can't be said can't be said, and it can't be whistled either. It can't be whispered. The burden can be muted. No wave in the barren sequence rise on our account, triple soft but lashed like in the first instance, which can be sung. The right to love refusal is black music. The song about desire always wants to disappear. In the second instance, she released in public chastity, flirting at the club and wound. Damaged from repeating, can you stay? Be my autograph and discompose. If only you do not try to utter what is unutterable, then nothing gets lost. But the unutterable will be unutterably enjoyed in what has been enjoyed. But I couldn't get it straight, so I had to do it again. I was trying to see if there was some tight, relatively rational attempt to address this problem that maybe is in this poem that needed to be fleshed out and disrupted 
and interjected with laughter and desire in the same way that Nancy does with that second live version of the song. So I wrote another version of this poem called Sweet Nancy Wilson Saved Frank Ramsey. The burden is also a refrain that runs through you. You get no credit or you get bad credit. Nevertheless, we write ourselves a sound check. The one we come to cash is written for us on our account. When Fred Wesley asked George Clinton what kind of horn arrangements he wanted, Clinton replied, something bad. Nancy Wilson and Cannonball recorded two versions of Save Your Love for Me. They ride and bear the history of voice and horn, arrangement and derangement. Derangement is something bad. Even our arrangements move in relation to the troubled pleasures of the first instance that can be sung through the singer, through words or their turning. What gives you the right to love black music, this eruption out of and into catastrophe? How are you justified in claiming these pleasures in their terribleness between the impossibility of redress and the marked up, marked down, brutally inscribed, viciously discounted remains of the ones who, in spite of every anheroic act of getting over, can't get over, forming the lost body of our broken bridge. Salim asked me what I liked about Cecil, and I couldn't say. So now let me say something about what I want from Cecil's music, or about the way that music tells me what I want. Can I get to that, or do I need to get over that? Or are these motions of getting to and getting over connected, as in the second instance? She was saving something, too. A social desire for sexual desire, often disavowed, indexed now as waiting. The incalculable combination of extravagance and thrift, their tuning. Cannonball's not there in the first version, but now, since we don't never know how we're going to be acting, he moves in the joints held arousal. Blurred unison, vagrant shift. She joins and sings over Nat's fills, and he becomes something like, but on the other hand, way more than a little brother giggling from upstairs, cutting his displacement, amping up the sociality, bringing noise. Speaking of noise, what about the damage that comes from desire manifested as as repeated play? Over and over again indexes unfulfillment in indulgence. Sometimes I listen just for the trace of that obsession. Now the digital technique keeps faith with the cracks and pops of love. Between love and saving, love and waiting, love and singing what can't be sung or said. Between love and salvation, what it is continually to be saved by the music. Continually to ask this of the music from way back and way up ahead where desperation and desire cut each other up to put something away. The content of what can't be said in the scar of singing something for something other than that. Will the love that's held in these intimations that we love save itself for us? Will the social life that makes itself wait for us? Will the future recorded live hold on for us? I'm sweet Nancy Wilson way past singing. I'm fabulously Cecil Taylor of the field. It's her part I'm always trying to sing, though she's not singing. Move my fingers to the field, even though he's not here, alive, angled, remote, accompanied. They unconceal, pattern poised in illusion like it's supposed to be. Variation spins the theory of saving and can't be counted. Bring across the secret that trusts no words. Saying something beyond saying in the exile of voice and horn, whistled though it can't be whistled, said in singing though it can't be said, said in leaving singing, said in leaving it unsung, song of desire, safe from desire, saved in desire. So I think I'm going to try, if I can find it without causing too much trouble. I'll read you one last little poem, and then I'll stop. Um, it's kind of, I said I wasn't going to write any more poetry, but I accidentally wrote a poem the other day. It's not my fault. 
um, these things happen, you know. But but I'm not responsible. I have to find it. Um, it's in my little notebooks, but I think I can find it. Only question is, when I find it, will I be able to read it? Because the print is so small. But here it is. Um, I thought, I'm trying to make so much out of that Baldwin thing. What will happen to all that beauty? And I needed maybe to try to see if there was some kind of provisional, though horrible and terrible answer to the question. What happened to all that beauty? They suffered. They were suffered in floodplain. Floods variant planning. Yazoo's black, practically informal function in endless forth in trade. In Delta, angled intricate in Memphis, in Memphis. In seeing, seeing and separation are inseparable in seeing through, in seeing through, as, as the sun around the earth, as in disorder, they were murdered as they murmured. So, thank you. Mm-hmm.